0: Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the leadership development podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. I'm very excited to have Dr. Tony Fattis on the podcast. Dr. Faddis draws on 25 years of experience as a school teacher, principal, and district leader in Southern California public school systems. With a deep focus on ethical decision making, especially as it relates to the behaviors of public school teachers and leaders, she shares her knowledge and experience with school districts across the country through keynotes, lectures, workshops, and one on one consulting. Dr. Tony Faddis is the author of The Ethical Line 10 Leadership Strategies for Effective Decision Making. Tony, thank you so much for being on the program.
1: Hey, Joshua, it's nice to talk to you.
0: And as you know, the show is centered on leadership development. And today I would love to hear about your leadership journey and how you became an administrator, district leader, and professor.
1: I began as a teacher about 25 years ago and I loved being in the classroom. But I was encouraged by uh, my superintendent at the time to pursue an administrative services credential. And, you know, that really took me down a leadership path that I wasn't really considering because I love teaching so much. What I learned though from taking some classes in leadership is that I kind of had a knack for it. Um, I really enjoy listening to people and I really uh, like helping people with different interests come together in terms of consensus. I like to be a part of collaborative types of teams. And so I found myself as an associate principal for a couple of years and then um, became a principal after that and I have worked as a principal in Southern California at two different sites, both of them near the United States-Mexico border. I started working as a professor in the Educational Leadership Department at San Diego State about four years ago, and that has been such a joy to me to work with teachers really that aspire to become school leaders. And so it's been such a great opportunity for me to share some of the lessons I've learned as a site leader, as well as learn from the people who are in my class. And so as I work with different people, I'm always interested in hearing other perspectives. And we all have different backgrounds and cultural orientations and different identities. And so it's quite exciting to me to be able to understand how other people view school leadership and, you know, as an individual and in their own school contexts.
0: So I love that you said that the students are challenging you. So what are some concepts that are different with your students than what you're presenting to the class?
1: Well, you know, schools are pretty complicated these days. Uh, you run a school, right? You know this. They're, they're not any uh, simpler or less complicated than they were a few years ago. Um, you know, social media is a thing. You know, there's just different challenges with, with initiatives, either, you know, whether it be state or federal or local. And so there's lots of competition, if you will, for a principal's time and interest. And so when we couple that with You know, what are the needs of our students? We each approach leadership from a different perspective. And so much of our conversations in my class really revolve around the complex issues that principals and teachers face on their school campuses. And that could be related to race, to culture, to sexual identity or religious beliefs. And so because we all have a different perspective, we might approach the same problem differently. And I think that is really useful as we start to consider how someone else might approach that particular problem. Mm -hmm. And just because I've been a a site leader for 15 years doesn't mean that maybe I have the right perspective or approach, but I have a decision-making process that I go through to make sure that I'm staying true to my own core values. And I'm trying not to be blind to the differences in other people.
0: I want you to go back to your own experience. What was one of your biggest misconceptions as you moved from a teacher to an administrator?
1: Oh, well, as a teacher, you know, I was kind of, you know, I was the boss of my classroom and I had this idea that a principal would have much more power in terms of being able to make changes in the school system that I thought would be appropriate. And what I learned as a principal is you don't have any power. You're actually more in the middle than than ever because you're in the middle of, of teachers and kids and, and parents and community and, and other state and, and federal initiatives that, you know, that all compete for the principal's attention, if you will. And so that was probably the biggest lesson that I learned is that I can help people come to consensus, but I may not be able to enact all of the changes in the system that I would like
0: to. So being a principal is a tricky job. It's not like you can learn it from a book or a class. You have to experience it. So what was one trial or failure you experienced that created the most growth?
1: You know... I can think of a few mistakes I've made along the way, Um, but we learn from those. And there were a couple of times where I felt that perhaps I could have gone a different direction and and maybe saved face. And so the example that I'll provide was, um, I think I was back in my first or second year of the principalship, and we had a speech contest and the kids had... Developed their speeches and had presented them, and I had three outside judges who came to, you know, judge the speech contest, and they assigned points and this and that. And at the end, um, they announced that this particular girl was a was the winner, and so we all celebrated for her, and you know, it was announced publicly. And then a little while later, one of the judges came to me and said, "Oh, I miscalculated. Actually, it was this other girl who won." And so I was presented with this dilemma because now it's already been, it's been announced publicly, but in my heart, I know that this other girl should have won. And so what I did was I I said, you know what, I'm so sorry, we made a mistake. I take responsibility, you know, but it was actually this other person who won the, the speech contest. And, you know, there was a lot of tears and not on my part, although I felt really bad, but you know, especially for the girl that was actually second place. And so that was a big lesson in terms of, you know, I I held true to my integrity. I felt good about what I did, but I realized the impact that that decision had upon other people. And so while I, I believe I made the right decision, and the lesson that I learned was I'm responsible for for each of those things. And what I should have done better was double check with judges. Double, you know, double check all of those things to make sure that we weren't doing something. You know, it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, what I realized later was I'm responsible for those mistakes. And so when that happens, I need to, first of all, catch it if I can, but if I don't, then I need to stand out there and, and take it because I didn't, I didn't follow through maybe perhaps the way I should have.
0: In your experience, which leadership skills were the most difficult to develop?
1: Um, that's a good question for me. You can have many, many skills and say instruction Curriculum assessment, but if you don't have the culture aspect, if you don't have the emotional intelligence to be able to connect with people or to um, know how to reach people in a way that they, uh, you know, like receive it in a way that they understand it, you know, that's a really big challenge, and so. I think maybe one of the hardest, not hardest, but something that I'm I'm aware of or I'm conscious of is that I, I speak from the lens of a white female educator. And sometimes that, you know, that's the way I see things. And I, I grew up in middle class America in a middle class school system. And so sometimes when I work with other people, especially people of color, just kind of being able to explain where I come from yet trying to ask questions respectfully to understand where they come from, you know, that's a, that's a challenge of leadership and just being authentic in those particular roles, Mm -hmm. you know, just being, you know, inquisitive, but not interrogating someone, but also, you know, trying to be upfront or be vulnerable about, you know, like who I am and what I bring to the
0: table. And as you consult with other schools, around the country, what is the largest barrier to the success of leaders and how do we combat those barriers?
1: One of the the biggest barriers that I have witnessed as of late is that there's still quite a few leaders that I work with or have come in contact with that don't recognize the inequities that exist between different groups of students. And that surprises me and it disheartens me because I don't know that you can be an ethical leader if you don't acknowledge or don't pay attention to the differences that are, that exist between are, you know, different peoples or, you know, the different groups of students that we have on our campus. So I think that's a, that's a big challenge. We're coming off a, a decade or more of being colorblind, where we, white people especially, didn't want to acknowledge or see color. And so we're, we're, we're fighting against and trying to overcome that barrier of we, we do need to see color. And we do need to acknowledge it and not just color. The color is the first thing that you see, but we do need to acknowledge the experiences and the individuality of of our other students and other community members as well.
0: And I know you're very passionate about equitable practices and you have a whole host of resources on your website. What were some of the largest trials you've had in your work on equity?
1: It continues to be a work in progress because I'm always examining, you know, like what do I bring? to the table you know like what am I trying to achieve what am I trying to promote if you will and so I'm always self-reflecting and as a white female just recognizing that you know I've I've lived a fairly privileged life and that has shaped who I've become and so I'm trying to use my social capital to uh, provide a lens for other people to see how there are inequities that exist and I think it's useful when we have time to actually develop rapport and talk about you know, ourselves as individuals and then begin to kind of peel back some of those layers. And what's difficult about that is it takes time for people to warm up. It takes time for them to recognize that um, when we're talking about color or race or language, that we're not talking about someone being racist or not racist in the those prior eras we're talking about things that are currently going on in our own schools and in our own communities and that can be difficult for people to to recognize and it can also be difficult for the people of color in the room they can feel a little bit on the spot
0: and so how are school leaders able to create an inclusive school climate
1: school leaders can create an inclusive environment by really taking a good look at the community that surrounds the school and by first walking around the neighborhood just seeing what buildings and businesses and religious organizations what's going on within the community and then really just stopping and talking to people asking some questions and being more of a listener than being a talker and just really you know having a genuine and authentic desire to connect with other people just to learn and as you promote you know your own core values and lead with those so people can see who you are you know as a person as well as a leader then you know my hope would be that there would be an alignment between what I say and what I do such that people understand you know like who I am as an individual and, and what I bring to the community
0: In your organization, or as a professor, how are you growing future leaders?
1: Well, I'll discuss what we're doing in my school district. We are actually, we have developed a leadership pipeline that begins in our teacher pool, if you will, those teacher leaders who are already in our schools. And so what we're doing is we're more systematically tapping those people on the shoulder and asking them to consider becoming a school leader. And we're providing more supports at that teacher leadership level. We're, we're providing formal and informal supports to um the associate principals in our school system, as well as the new principals. And so the new principals are our principals that are in their first and second year of the principalship. And so what we're what we're creating is this pipeline of leadership so that we always have people on the bench that will be the up-and-comers that won't just be whoever's available, but they will, you know, really be strategically assigned to different school communities based upon the school community needs, as well as the interests and the strengths and the preference of those particular leaders.
0: So obviously, administration is a very competitive field. So as a district administrator looking for aspiring leaders, what characteristics are you looking for in leaders?
1: Well, what we talk about in class and in our district is that you can have all of the, the book know-how, you can know all of the theory, but it's really, it's about practice, it's about application, it's about being willing to ask questions and show who you are as a, an emotionally in-tune leader. It's being able to recover when mistakes are made, it's being willing to ask Just ask questions versus make all of the decisions yourself. So something that we really promote is just that aspect of collaborative leadership, that it's not all about one person unless there is a decision around emergency or safety, which are fairly infrequent, luckily. You know the, the leader can make that particular decision, but most of the other decisions can be made by a team, which really generates ownership and, and buy-in, and so then we, we move as a whole school community versus isolated pockets of success. So I think that's the, the biggest characteristic, if you will, of the type of leaders that we're looking for. It's, it's the full package, but it's, it's wrapped around that emotional intelligence piece.
0: So I went on and read one of your blogs called Know Thyself and you provide a strategy for leaders called Stop, Drop and Roll. And you're not talking about being on fire, but the three (laughs) things were stop the mental chatter, drop your ego and roll with it. So where did those three concepts come from?
1: Well, so thinking back to, you know, when we were kids, I don't know if you heard that particular expression when we used to have to practice for for fire drills and things, and it was stop, drop, and roll. And, you know, in this day and age, we, we have those same types of fire drills, but we also have lockdowns, and um, we have other emergency types of drills. And when people talk to me about my leadership style, like I've also, I've often been called like Zen principal and just... People always comment about how calm I am and so what I've been able to articulate is an analogy that's like the stop, drop and roll in that, you know, like when something happens, I stop, I consider what's going on around me, I drop, which means like I drop my ego, it's not about me. And I think about what is the the best possible outcomes, what are our options, and then roll, and then I just roll with it. It's not about me, it's about what can we do together to make it the very best for our students and our community. And so that's just been my philosophy about, you know, just just be calm, just be zen, just stop, drop, and roll.
0: I love that. I always enjoy bringing leaders on so that they can provide examples of practical strategies or initiatives. So what is one initiative you've implemented on your campus or in your district that you're extremely proud of?
1: Oh, I have several, but probably um, the example that I'll mention here is at the school where I was most recently a principal, um, I was... Very excited to go, first of all, to that school community. It was four miles from the United States-Mexico border. Just really nice kids, great neighborhood of families, and just really nice staff who really cared about the students. But achievement was really low and so together just the staff and the community like everyone came together we were we all chose what we wanted to work on for our language arts and just like we had a hundred percent buy-in from teachers parents were on fire kids had this system and just being able to mobilize and you know together as a unit what i'm most proud about and not only the engagement from students but just how excited about learning they became and All of a sudden, we didn't have an attendance problem anymore. Kids wanted to be at school. They were being challenged in classes. They were talking to me about different books and different things that they're doing on the weekend. So it was was just like this great big community effort. And as a result, achievement went up. But the main goal was to help kids to love learning. And that was achieved in high test scores or not high, but higher test scores were just a really nice byproduct. But I feel really good about the education that we were able to provide those students. In the last four years when I was there, um, I feel that they got some really solid skills for their future academic careers as well as you know their life skills and how they'll how they'll continue to grow and mature. So I'm very proud of that.
0: With that concept, What do you believe the relationship between social emotional learning and soft skills are with curriculum? Because it sounds like there was a relationship between that initiative that you had.
1: Most definitely, I don't think you can separate social and emotional learning from academic learning. And there are different curriculums and different programs. And I think those might be useful to pull out different parts. But really, it comes down to the soft skills and the people skills. It's it's down to the relationships. And we don't need to rely on, in my opinion, we don't need to rely on a program to help us be better connectors we can be better connectors with our students as well as each other and our neighbors by just looking introspectively and thinking about well how can i listen more carefully or more generously to this person how might i connect with this student a little bit better and so the the sel curriculums are nice in terms of providing some some questions and some discussion starters, but I think that those might fall flat without the structure from the teacher as well as from the school. And so that's why I think that it's it's a useful starting place, but really it comes down to what's in your what's in your heart and how you can help students because all academic learning is connected to social and emotional learning.
0: As a leader with a vast amount of experience, what are some areas you want to change in education?
1: Some areas that I want to change in education, well, when I think about the physical structures of schools and how they're designed, I would like to see in some places a complete overhaul because there are some inequitable practices that are occurring. And I don't think they're fair. I don't think it's ethical. When I think about how um, in some places we aren't addressing students' social and emotional needs. That's another area where we can't just say, let's detonate the whole system, but we, we need to work within the sphere of influence that we have. And some of those things we can control, whether it's how we provide intervention for students, whether it's looking at the master schedule, there are particular actions that we can take to improve you know, what we can do or what's in our what's in our own sphere of influence and so as we look at our the curriculum choices that we make and the instructional strategies that we use those are all really important um, components to an equitable education that are within our sphere of influence
0: for those who haven't had the opportunity to read the ethical line 10 leadership strategies for effective decision making will you just provide a quick synopsis of the book for our aspiring leaders
1: Absolutely. So I'm really hopeful that people will enjoy reading the ethical line. Um, It's broken into four components, four chapters really. Um, So the first chapter is really around, um, it starts with the inside and moves outward. So the first chapter is around identifying your core values and and then looking inward. And also looking at your system of support. And what are those self-care techniques? How are you taking care of yourself? such that you can take care of other people. Chapter two is really around examining the values of your school community. And by school community, I mean students and parents and staff listening generously to those individuals such that you're able to create an inclusive climate. And then you're as an inclusive leader, you're able to unify the community through a shared purpose and a shared vision. And that collective vision is is what drives everything that the school community does. Chapter three is around the moral and ethical standards that we have in our national standards as well as state standards. Um, Not only is ethics and integrity standard number two, but ensuring equity is number three. And so there are some concepts, if you will, that are implied in the standards, but they aren't called out. And so that's where I try to break down some of those tricky decisions that really are dependent upon a particular context or a particular individual in terms of how we might solve that particular challenge. And so, what I try to provide is a toolkit for leaders to consider might you look at a situation with a five year old who brings a knife to school differently than a 15 year old who brings a knife to school? so there's different contextual factors and then finally in chapter four it's all it it comes together with leading an ethical inclusive and equitable campus where you're actually walking the talk and you're modeling um, your core values and then the final chapter really involves how leaders can strategically influence others within the school community to continue to make strives towards those equitable practices that will lead to equitable outcomes for our students. So in a in a nutshell, the ethical line really isn't about, it's not an ethics book. The way I explain it is I assume each person has, you know, their own ethical principles. I don't assume anyone is unethical. I think for the most part, as educators, we're we're pretty ethical people. Um, but my but my question is can you be an ethical leader if you don't pay attention to inclus- inclusion and race and equity? If you don't acknowledge that inequities exist between different groups of students, and then it just goes to you know, like those lenses. So, how do you see a particular problem? I have my own lenses, and someone has another lens, but the way that we grow and become better is by. Understanding our lens as well as those of other people. So, my book is, is really not about easy decisions. It's about the hard decisions that we ponder that keep us up, you know, like way into the night. It's about, you know, building s- strong decision making habits. It serves our profession as well as the students that we're, we're charged to serve.
0: In addition to your admin position, you speak at conferences, you blog, and you're very active on social media. So, how did you find your voice beyond your district?
1: You know, I was very fortunate to have great mentorship. I'm not sure if you know Dr. Douglas Fisher and Dr. Nancy Fry, but I've had the great fortune of working with them in a leadership capacity for about 10 or 11 years and I also have had many opportunities to study them colleague to colleague so not only have they provided great mentorship for me but they have also you know like helped me to find my voice so I I guess what I'm trying to say is that that was one of their mentoring points was to to draw that out of me and they really taught me that I had something to say and that It was an important topic and that people will listen. And so just thinking about those two particular mentors in particular, I think that's really how I've been able to find my voice.
0: So for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them?
1: For people who are aspiring to become leaders, I really encourage you to take this path because it's very rewarding, but I think it's such important work and we need People that are willing to you know, have a dog in the fight because that's what's gonna make the difference for our students. And so sometimes it, you know, you've heard the expression, it's lonely at the top. Well, it doesn't have to be. Not if you do things right. Not if you're careful and conscientious and intentional about the relationships that you cultivate and the school community that you grow. It doesn't have to be lonely and it can be the most rewarding thing that you ever do. And I would and I would just say I think that being a principal, as much as I loved being a teacher, being a principal, I just enjoyed that so much more because I was in so many different classrooms and seeing so many amazing, wonderful things occurring that when I was a classroom teacher, I didn't have the opportunity to see. I didn't look outside the 25 boys and girls that were in my classroom. And so just that opportunity for leadership and being able to to grow your sphere of influence is amazing. And I would just encourage anyone that has an inkling of becoming a leader to just to give it a try. I think that you'll enjoy the challenge and the rewards that leadership brings.
0: So Tony, how can our listeners connect with you on social media?
1: So you can find me at Tony Faddis, and I also um, have a website at TonyFaddis.com. I travel quite a bit around the country. I speak at different conferences and venues, and I really like connecting with people around this work. So anybody that talks to me before or after a workshop or sends me an email, like I get to those, those people like every single time because that's really what I feel my purpose is. My purpose isn't to sell books. My purpose is to be as helpful as I possibly can because I wanna pay it forward. Just like I mentioned Doug and Nancy did for me, I want to be that mentor or that help for someone else. And so that's really what propels me to, to keep going. And so I just look forward to connecting with anyone that wants to talk more about the work or even about the weather I love being out in nature. I just like connecting with different, different sorts of people.
0: As most of you know, my goal for the Aspire podcast is to continue to get valuable information out to my listeners, and books are an amazing resource. Dr. Faddis has been gracious enough to provide two of her books, The Ethical Line. To enter, go to joshstamper.com and sign up for the Aspire newsletter. The winners will be selected and announced on Friday, August 2nd, 2019. As a subscriber of the Aspire newsletter, you are automatically entered for this book giveaway. I'm excited to announce the three winners from last week's book giveaway. Kyla Mote, Christian Bauer, and Stacy Meek have all won autographed copies of Andrew Morata's book, The Principle, of Surviving and Thriving. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast. And if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on the social media. Tony, thank you so much for being on the program.
1: Hey, Joshua, thanks so much for the opportunity. It was great talking with you tonight.